Okay, so welcome to our podcast today on Kantian ethics. I'm going to try and explain Kantian ethics to you in as much detail as possible. Remember that it's probably quite helpful to be pausing um, in order to be able to write things down. I'm going to start off by telling you a little bit about Immanuel Kant himself. He was born in 1724 in a city called Konigsberg, which is in East Prussia. And that is actually a city called Kalingrad now. His mother was fully German, but his father had Scottish blood. Um, He is displayed, if you were to see paintings of him, as a rather frail man. Um, And he never had wonderful health. He did, however, go to university at the age of 16 um, and financed himself through being a kind of full-time snooker player. He had an incredible academic life. Um, he began his academic career by looking mostly at kind of natural sciences and he began to develop really important theories around things like astronomy. But the latter half of his life, in his kind of older years, he devoted that almost exclusively to philosophical work. And it is for that reason he can be seen and can be often described as the greatest and most significant philosopher of the 18th century. Now, his context or his life matters because he never married and he lived a life of absolutely regular and quiet habits. He said that any changes to his daily routines made him nervous. Um, Some people think he, he barely left his town and he went on a daily walk every single day across the same route at the same time for the last 50 years of his life. He ended up being buried in Konigsberg Cathedral, um, And he eventually got moved somewhere else um, because of kind of politics. His bones got moved. And he was given the title, a university uh, in Russia was given the title of the Immanuel Kant State University of Russia. So that's just a little bit of context, I suppose, about who he was and just how significant the work he did was in his life. So we think the most important thing that we start off talking about with Kant always is this idea of duty. Kant believed that all of us had the ability to reason. He thought that we know the goals, we we make goals for ourselves, we know ourselves to be the ones who select these goals and we get to decide how to achieve them. And to have goals and to be able to choose the actions we we take in order to pursue those goals makes us free, makes us autonomous, rational human beings. And as we can see, for Kant, autonomy was central to rational thought. He thought that errors in moral thinking, so basically when people do the wrong thing or make the wrong decision, came about because they had what we call heteronymous approaches. Now, heteronymous is a word that Kant himself made up. And he would have described people that were really religious as people who were making heteronymous decisions because they were doing things like being good or following the Ten Commandments in order to get to heaven. Whereas he thought that was really problematic. If we do something in order to achieve something else, if we go to the gym in order to look good for Instagram then we are not really acting free. We're not acting as autonomous beings. And for him, that that wasn't acceptable because 
for us to use our reason and for our reason to truly flourish, our reason can't be coerced. So he thought it was kind of like a contradiction in terms to talk about, you know, using our reason in order to achieve something. Because if we were doing it purely for that reason to get to heaven or to look good on Instagram, we are controlled by something. We are controlled by these external desires or these external authorities or influences. And, and if that's the case, then our reason itself isn't truly free. So coming back now to talk about this word of duty. And for him, this word duty gave a single focus to ethics. Kant has huge demands for us as human beings. He demands us to be morally serious. He considers that we're not acting morally if we do what we enjoy or what gives us some kind of personal benefit. And on that level, he would therefore massively disagree with Bentham. I'm just going to repeat that. He says we're not acting morally if we do what we enjoy or what gives us personal benefit. Reason enables us to reflect on ourselves. We find in ourselves an awareness of things in life that need to be done. And if we look within ourselves and we find out that there are things that need to be done, what, the re- what reason has allowed us to do is recognise what duty looks like. By this word duty... Kant means doing what we ought to do. We have a sense of obligation to perform certain actions, such as telling the truth, obeying the legitimate instructions, being truthful, doing good for others. He says after we have reasoned out what we ought to do, So we have worked out what our duty is. We should seek to do our duty no matter what our inclinations or the consequences involved are. It is not that to benefit what you do or to enjoy it is immoral in itself. It's not to say if I'm helping the old lady cross the road and I do get some enjoyment from it, that that is a problem. It's not a problem It's just that my enjoyment is not relevant to whether helping her or not helping her is moral or not. How I feel about it doesn't matter because he talks about emotions hampering our ethical decisions. He thinks that uh, emotions are unreliable, that we are too badly influenced by them and they do not allow us to make objective decisions. He thinks that when we're making moral decisions, outcomes are never clear. So it's too difficult to try to make decisions based on outcomes. The outcomes might also be dictated by feelings rather than reason. So Kant argues that what matters is that our will should be good. We should will what is right. And Kant insists that there is only one thing that can be regarded as good without explanation and without qualification. And that is what he calls the goodwill. Now, I've always found goodwill to be one of the most difficult aspects of Kant to explain. The way I think I would explain it is our, our will and our goodwill is our desire 
and our ability to act according to a central moral law. Our desire and our ability to act according to a central universal moral law. And Kant believes that this moral law exists, that there is uh, something within our universe that is a, a moral law that is common for all people completely universally. And we can find out what that is. And by that fact that he says that there is an absolute moral law suggests, therefore, that Kantian ethics is both deontological and absolute. Kant's theory is probably the most obviously absolutist of all moral theories because the command to do one's duty is invariable, means that it cannot change. Not to do one's duty is always absolutely wrong. So we are bound to this duty to follow this moral absolute law. Kant recognises, however, in life, human beings have various goals. For example, someone might have the goal of being a doctor or a lawyer. There's no moral obligation to become any of these things, but I might want to. Suppose I wish to become a lawyer. I would need to do certain things, like I would need to pass exams. And if I wish to follow this career, then there are certain steps I am obliged to take. They are imperatives. I cannot practice as a solicitor if I do not pass the exams. But notice, if I wish to be a barrister, then I must follow these steps. When there is an if in an imperative, it marks it to be something called a hypothetical imperative. Something which I must do in order to achieve certain goals. So a hypothetical imperative is what we must do to achieve a particular goal. There is no requirement to follow this, but it is how we should act if we wish to achieve something. So it usually has the character of saying, if X, then Y. If I go to the gym, then I will look good for my photographs. If you want to be a fighter pilot, then you need to learn engineering. The good of hypothetical imperatives is clearly instrumental. This is a good word to use here. It means we've done something in order to get something out of it. I've helped you with your homework in order that Miss May thinks I'm good at my job. That would mean that my actions are motivated entirely by self-interest. And if they are motivated by self-interest, they therefore can't ever lead to commands that absolutely everyone should obey. So if acting according to a hypothetical imperative is wrong, we now need to know how to act in a way that leads us to doing our duty. So it's one thing to say, we must, as human beings, always follow the requirements of duty. But that's so unhelpful if we haven't specified what our duty is. 
So it's common to describe Kant's understanding of duty in terms of what he calls the first, second and third formulations of the categorical imperative. Now, again, each of these formulations are probably things that you kind of understand, but I'm just going to explain them to you in a little bit more depth. So when you are writing about them, you are capable of explaining them in far more detail. So the first formulation of the categorical imperative is sometimes known as the principle of universalization, or less commonly as the formula of the law of nature. So Kant thinks that we should, only, we should act only according to that maxim whereby you can at the same time will that it should become universal law. And remember, the word maxim means a general guideline or principle of action. So keeping in mind that it's only the maxim that is universalized, this suggests that if what I propose to do is to be considered to be right, I should be prepared for everyone else to work on the same principle. So we should only act on the maxim we are willing to follow as a law and at the same time have that law apply for everyone. Suppose I want to steal from my neighbour. This is the example a textbook gives. In what sense could this possibly be moral? Would I want my neighbour to steal from me? But that would spoil the advantage of possessing his state of an art TV. Because surely as a rational person, I would not want everyone to steal from his neighbour. Therefore, I must not steal from my neighbour, even if that would benefit me. Now, Kant himself, the examples he uses around this first formulation, he talks about lying, he talks about theft, he talks about suicide, uh, and actually we wouldn't want everybody to universalise suicide. He also, quite randomly, talks, gives the examples of laziness, like even though we want to be lazy and we might not want to do our work or go have a job, we wouldn't want everyone to be in the same position. Um, and he also talks about cruelty to animals being something that, again, we wouldn't want everybody to do. Now, the second formulation is sometimes referred to as the principle of the priority of ends or sometimes as the formula of the end in itself. Now, this one can be summarised as excluding using other people simply as a means of achieving your own ends. Let me be so clear, because I think people have asked me this question. That does not mean you should not use somebody as a means to achieve something you want. Because if you can't use anybody, you would have a real problem getting a taxi, because you would need to use them in order to get to your destination. But the clue is given in the phrase, if you look, listen back at the, same, uh, at the Kant's words, he says, act only according to a maxim, whereby you can at the same time will that it should become a universal law. So if you need to use someone as a means to your end, and society is built on people providing services for one another, you should treat them also as an ends. In other words, as a free moral agent in my own right. So I can treat the taxi driver as a means to an end, but I must at the same time 
treat him as an end in himself. So I must at the same time be courteous and polite and treat him with dignity. So I am using him to achieve something at the same time as treating him as an end in yourself, in himself. And this follows on from the first formulation, because if you can will that the principle on which you should act should become a universal principle of law, then you must be prepared for everyone else to make that same moral choice. In other words, you have to allow that all others are free moral agents as you are, because to treat people only as a means is to dehumanise them, and you would not want to treat people in, the, in this way. And there's an example here. On the night of 14th of November in 1941, the largest bombing raid that was carried out in the Second World War 449 German bombers dropped 30,000 bombs on Coventry, which is near Birmingham. 568 civilians were killed. 41,500 homes were demolished. And 2,306 homes were destroyed. There is evidence that the British authorities had prior knowledge of this raid because the scientists at Bletchley Park had broken special codes called the Enigma Codes, which contained the German orders for the raid. Winston Churchill was left with a decision of appalling dignity. If he moved the people out of Coventry and the Germans found out, they would have known that the Enigma Codes had been broken. Doing this would have led to huge amounts of death and other suffering, because they might then devise a new and even more difficult code. If the facts are as they are now to believe to be, then the authorities were using the people of Coventry as a means for the sake of others as ends. But if the decision had been taken to move the people out, then the thousands and perhaps millions who might have died would have been used as a means to treat the people in Coventry as ends. Apparently, Churchill said that the decision not to move the out people out of Coventry was the only one from the war that continued to give him nightmares. In warfare, not everyone can be saved. There are other circumstances as well when choices have to be made between saving some people at the expense of others. It's not always clear-cut that we should always use people as an ends and never as a means. And to say we should pay no heed to consequences does not help us to determine what that duty is in these hard cases. And what that example shows us is in Winston Churchill's decision, some people, whatever decision he had to make, were going to be treated as a means to an end. So as a kind of problem, a criticism with Kantian ethics, is it possible to always treat people as not as a means to an end? And then lastly, we've got the third formulation, which is called the kingdom of ends. And this follows on from the other two forms. Kant sees it as a clarification of our, our, our own duty of acting. So he says this, act as though a legislating member in the universal kingdom of ends, that you should always act as though you were responsible for making rules in a kingdom where everyone is to be treated as an end and not as a means. In other words, a society of free and autonomous human beings. 
And it sounds abstract, but what camp means is that we must act as if our actions made laws for everyone else and everyone else acted in the same way. Suppose I want to perform an action such as giving my aunt a birthday present. This is not simply a private act. By giving my aunt a birthday present, my choice of action is a commitment to the idea that everyone in the world should always give birthday presents to their aunts. So what I'm doing is I'm thinking of my action as a rule for everyone, which is done for the good of people in general. And I should treat the actions of all other rational people as rules for me. Now, as I've explained to you in lessons, that this third formulation does not act, add very much to the categorical imperative that you haven't already found in the first two, but it is an insistent reminder of our duty and our responsibility. And it emphasises the significance of treating people as an end. Now, the next thing we need to talk about in regards to Kant is about God and immortality. Because there's been so much debate, and I genuinely find this fascinating, there's so much debate about Kant's personal religious belief. Some supporters and some of his opponents see him as an atheist. He had this kind of enthusiasm for unaided human reason. He didn't really like a lot of things about religion. And in some ways, he kind of preached against it. His own religious practice is a little vague. Kant was inclined when he taught at the university to give excuses to, to not go to religious services. He was brought up as a Lutheran, which is a type of Christian. And he really didn't kind of get on board with this. Evidence from his ethical theory is uncertain. If we emphasise reason alone, it might suggest to some that his belief in God is irrelevant. Because if morality was an internalisation of God's commands, that would be heteronymous. If we were following God's commands in order to get something, that would be heteronymous. But we must bear in mind that for many Christian philosophers... Morality is not dependent on God in the same way someone like Aquinas has argued. God, they argue, commands what is right. God has decided what is right. But it is reason that allows us to find out what is right. So in Kant's ethics, we find a belief that there are three postulates of practical reason. And they are three things that make up his belief in practical reason. A postulate means a principle that is so obvious that it doesn't need any other justification. It's basically an assumption. This is connect. So the first one says that we are free human beings. And I've spoken about this a bit before. We need to be free human beings. It is the fact we are free that makes us capable of knowing what our duty is. The second one is the belief that we are immortal. He believes that we do go on to experience life after death. And thirdly, the idea that God exists. 
Kant believed that rationally, if those three things are true, we are free, we are immortal, we live forever, and God exists. He felt that rationally, immortal reward, so being rewarded in an afterlife, ought to follow a virtuous life. It's very important to be clear that he's not saying we ought to be moral for any kind of reward. Virtue should be rewarded, but we should be virtuous for its own sake because it is our duty not to get reward. Not many have found the argument to be particularly convincing. And the reason why they've not found it very convincing is because Kant's notion seems to be that it makes no sense to tell someone that she ought to do something if she cannot possibly do so. Whenever we say ought, can necessarily follows. If I say you ought to be kind to your mother, it makes no sense as far as it is possible for you to do so. If you had no known or no living mother, the instruction would be nonsense. You ought to flap your arms and fly would be absurd because what I'm demanding of you is impossible. But in Kant's moral argument, there's a different use of ought. It is an ought of what should exist, the summum bonum, not the ought of duty. Ought has many meanings. Because bad things happen to good people doesn't mean therefore compensation or justice will be forthcoming. If I say that they ought to be kind of recompensed, made up to, I'm expressing a wish. I'm not saying it's true. So Kant seems to assume that the universe is rational. And the major problem with the sum and bottom is that obviously for Kant, nothing can be heteronymous. You cannot do something in order to achieve something else for an external goal. And the problem with the sum and bonum is because the idea of an eternal life seems so exciting and so rewarding, but we have to act as if we don't know about it or as if we don't want it in order to achieve it. That sounds highly, highly difficult. So the sum and bonum is essentially a position or a place of reward that we cannot aim for because that undermines the rest of his ethics. I think I'm going to leave it there. I'm not going to talk about evaluation of Kantian ethics in this podcast because there is just so many possible ways to evaluate the strengths and the weaknesses. So that is what you now need to go on and do. I suggest you write yourself your own sort of table of strengths and weaknesses that have some detail, that potentially have some um, examples attached to them, and you begin to learn those.